Chris had said that it's just a sense that God is doing something here. And I just wanted to echo and agree with that based off even my own heart and what the Lord's been doing with me and, and what I've seen God been doing in, in my friends and our friends groups. Last couple of weeks, I've seen people confess sins out loud, believing the gospel, taking things that are in darkness and dragging it into the light that takes faith and courage. I've seen, seen my friends' groups and, and other groups get together and say they want to pray. People saying they want to draw near to the Lord and, and, and chase after him, to read the word, to pray and seek after the face of God. And church, I just want to say this morning with faith, I think it's just the first fruits of what God's doing. Oh, I think God's awakening our faith. In times in my life where I've seen it happen before and conversations with others, it always seems to start with this, people being surprised by grace again. The gospel capturing their hearts anew and people then taking that and praying desperate prayers. So this morning, I want to pray before I preach at all because I want the Lord to show up today. I want him to move our hearts. So please join me as I pray. Father God, Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Lord, would the good news of Jesus not be good news just for those who've never heard it, but for us, all of us, would we agree this is good news for us today? Awaken my sleepy heart, Lord. Surprise us by grace today. Lord, I pray not by my preaching or not by the music, but Lord, because you are present with us, would you do something in our midst this morning? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in a series in Hosea, and we've heard several different ways that God has communicated his concerns and his heart for his people. In the first several messages, first chapters of Hosea, we had the living parable of Hosea and his marriage to his wife, Gomer. It was a picture that God is a faithful spouse who continues to love, pursue, and redeem his spouse, his spouse who's bent on adultery. We had the picture two weeks ago of half-baked cakes and, and a silly, senseless dove, and, and Chris challenged us to examine our own faith. Is our faith this morning half-baked or or are we careless in our faith, like the silly dove? Well, this week we pick up another picture. Another picture that attempts to communicate the heart of God. A heart that feels love and heartache. And it's an emotional picture. It's a familial one. A scripture is not meant to be read like a dry instruction manual. Although it does have instructions, it's not meant to be read that way. It's not dry and dispassionate. At times, scriptures borrows legal language and lays out a case. But it's never far from expressing how that case affects God and his people in visceral and relational language. So we would do well this morning to allow ourselves to feel 
and I use that word rightly, that we would feel the weight of this passage, the force of it. And it may not be an easy picture for everyone to enter into. But together this morning, let's enter into the story of a devoted parent and a wayward child. I'm reading out of Hosea chapter 11. I'll start with verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. You know, nothing in my life prepared me for how much I love my daughters. Nothing prepared me at all. I didn't know that my heart could stretch as much as it has to include my children in it. You know, with friends and even your spouse, there's, there's relationship that comes. It, it, your, your love grows with time. And, and sometimes the, the thought, even in loving relationships, the, the temptation could enter in that, that you've kind of earned each other's love. But I remember when Arden was pregnant with Margot. I had never met my daughter, but I knew she was there. And I was at a wedding. And, and, and at the wedding, it was at that point where the father gives his daughter away. And, and in weddings, that's always a, a weird part of the sermon or of the ceremony, but, but also nice, right? But, but as I was watching it that day, I started to cry. It's ridiculous, right? I started to cry. But why? Why was I crying? I hadn't even held Margot once, but I was sitting there imagining walking down an aisle and giving my daughter away to another man. And it was wrecking me. <laughs> Why? Why does it do that? Because we love them. See, my daughter, she hadn't done anything for me. I hadn't received one handmade Father's Day card yet. I, I never had any of those moments where she comes running to me. I never had a squeezy hug. That's what we call them in our house. No I love yous and no memories. I just loved my daughter. And I think there's something easy to overlook in the first verse that I want to point out this morning. It said, before Israel was called out of Egypt, God loved him. That's before they even had the law. They, they didn't know God's commands or how to obey God. There was no time for Israel to do anything to set themselves apart, to, to earn God's affection. No time to shine over others. No relationship at all. And yet God loved Israel. Why is that important? Because if we get this part wrong, in Israel's story or in our own stories, we will never understand the heart of our father. God loved his son Israel before anything else. It was his love that initiated relationship in the first place. 
a love that called his people out of slavery so they could be free with him. Slavery is an important theme we're going to pick up today. It's in the background of every verse. And so I want you to hold that in your mind. But I just want to remind us, before we even move a second further in the sermon, God loved you before you did anything. There's a tension in every verse that we have today. A father who loves his son deeply and a son who loves his slavery deeply. Look at verse 2 again. Every time God, God calls his son, his son flies further away. Have you ever done this with your parents? Parents, have you ever seen this with your children? You know, this happened. This happens at times when, when we have done something wrong. You know, you, you know you did something wrong and, and you're kind of waiting to get found out. And then you hear your name called by your parent and it sounds very different. Suddenly your mom and dad calling your name, it, it's different. They use your full name and, and you want to hide in those moments, don't you? Sometimes it's because you're doing something wrong in the moment and you know it. And they call you, and you just want to get away. You know, I, I had this happen just this past week with my daughter, Lulu. We got out of the car at Target. We get into the parking lot, and, and the rule in our household is in parking lots, we hold each other's hands. And she's always been good with that. So I get her out of the car, I, I look up, I'm looking towards Target, I reach my hand down, and usually I feel her little hand just reach into mine, and there is nothing there. And I look, and she is walking away from me with her hands just swinging at her side. Right? She's like so happy and carefree and confident. So I very gently say, Lulu. And her head straightens a little bit more. You know? It's that straighten where it's too much. You know she heard you, but she's trying to pretend that she didn't. So she's looking straight ahead. Her hands are swinging. And I say, Lulu. And she keeps going. So I very, very calmly say, Lulu! And she starts running. So I chase after her, and when I basically tackle her, I'm wrestling her, I'm holding her. You know when you get the kid, and, and they just turn to jello, and they fall? And I'm holding her, and she's squirming in my arms, and I swear, I, 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 I hear her muttering to herself, a big kid, I'm a big kid, I can walk by myself now. It's funny. It's funny. And it's dangerous. For Lulu, it was the danger of the cars. Right? It's a parking lot. She's small. People could not see her. But for Israel, God's son, in this passage, it is far, far worse. They're not just running away from a loving father who's calling them. They're running to something. They're running to slavery. They're running to idols and false gods. They're running to a false father. I want you to notice the response of God in this passage. I think we often think of God in the Old Testament as quick to wrath and justice. But look at the following verses. As they ran from their father, 
He was the one there to teach them to walk. He uses the name Ephraim here, which is another name for Israel. He, he was the one to pick them up when they fell. He was the one to be there to heal them when they tripped and they stumbled and they fell. When they scraped their knees as a good father, he would come and scoop them up. He would hold them lovingly. He would heal them and clean their wounds. And did Israel look at him and say, Father, no. No, they took those very actions and attributed them to false gods. And yet he still did it. Because he loved his son. I wonder this morning if we run from the voice of God. Are there places in your life where you dread to hear him call your name? Are there things that we have done that we carry shame and condemnation for? Maybe, maybe even something you did very long ago and it just weighs deep in your soul and you feel the weight of it. When you hear his voice, when you hear him calling out to you, all you can hear is the tone of an angry God. It's a fear. Not the kind that comes in awe and reverence, but a fear, the kind that, that is certain of punishment and disappointment. Or is there something you're currently doing, pursuing, enslaved to? And you don't want to hear God's voice at all. You, maybe, maybe if you ever get around to fixing yourself up first, you think, I, if I just get a handle on this thing in my life, then, then I'll, I'll really come back to the Lord or I want to be near him again. He wouldn't want me right now. I need to, I need to work on myself. I need to, to get this under control. You, you hear his voice at times, but you pull further and further away. Not because you don't want relationship with God, but because you're so certain that you shouldn't have it at all. I don't deserve it. He wouldn't want me. See, maybe this morning you can imagine a father loving his child before the child has done anything good for the father, but you cannot fathom a father's love for a child when the child has done everything wrong to the father. Let's keep looking at the passage together. Verse 5 through 7, they, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now we find the consequences for the son who's fled from a loving father. Instead of Egypt... And Egypt historically and, and all throughout the Old Testament just comes to symbolize and represent slavery for Israel. But instead of Egypt, it'll be Assyria. Different name, same master. Verse 5 is basically saying that they won't go back to Egypt, but they'll go back to slavery because they won't go back to me. God's son is going to get what he's running after. 
what he's chasing. And look at the words that describe the fruit of it. The fruit of this slavery will be words like rage, consume, and devour. Notice the contrast from the first four verses of our passage. God treated his son with love, kindness, and healing. And God is watching his son run away from those things into the arms of slavery, which will consume and devour and rage against his son. You know, I've I've had the privilege in my life to know and love a lot of people. When I read this passage and I think of this, I can't help but think of people I loved who wasted away in front of me. The slavery they ran to in this life was a merciless master. Whether it was pornography, alcohol, or drugs like heroin. I watched the bodies of my friends transform under the weight of bondage. Not only did their bodies waste away, but their souls seemed to shrink too. The outside began to reflect what was happening on the inside. And I've watched in those moments the loved ones of them. The parents, the spouse, the sons, the daughters, the the family members, watching a loved one waste away before them. I wonder if this is a helpful picture for us this morning. See, God has a better perspective on our life and our sin than we do. We often think very little of our sin, but God sees it for what it is. You might literally be enslaved to something I just listed. That might be your experience this morning, but, but for others of us, we're running from things that are easier to hide, aren't we? We're running to things that that even the culture and the world around us might celebrate. Might tell us they're good things. Maybe instead of wasting away physically, you are primarily focused on building your body up. What you see in the mirror and what you think others see when they look at you consumes you. You want others to notice you, to pay attention to you. Maybe it's not physically for you. Maybe it's intellectually. Maybe it's your wit or your sense of humor. But but whatever it is, you live for the affirmation and approval of others. You go from conversation to conversation trying to win something from people. And when you fail, you walk away replaying it in your mind. Every interaction, every conversation is an opportunity for others to affirm you. Maybe it's your work and your output. You can have the trappings of being something for your family. Maybe, maybe you're, you're thinking, well, I'm just going to work really hard and I'm providing. Or maybe, maybe you even know it's an excuse just to get away from your family. Either way. Either way, your work, your performance devours the hours of your week. It takes your focus, your ambition, and your drive. You don't have time for your children, 
You don't have time to build that relationship, that legacy, to lead them. You don't have time for your spouse. You certainly don't have time for things like date nights. No, you're focused on this. And you live for that promotion. And when you get that promotion, you live for the next one. Maybe you have conversations with your spouse. When we make this much money, then we can finally do the things we've always wanted to do. And so you strive and you strive and you strive and you never get there. It is devouring. Others might praise you for these things, but they are merciless masters. I'll tell you this morning, they will not love you, they will not heal you, and they will not nurture you. You know, musician John Bellion, he has a song called Fashion. In the song, he sings about the endless pursuit of satisfying his own heart, desiring an obsession to fill an aching hole inside his chest, And to paraphrase him so I can avoid profanity, he points out the absurdity of his pursuit of satisfying his own heart with fashion when he sings about his gold necklace. He says it might be gold, but it's still a chain. It might be gold, but it's still a chain. Others might look at it and say, that's wealth, but but he knows it represents slavery. It's bondage. Brothers and sisters, are you wearing chains today? Have we slipped our back into bondage? Have we run from a loving father into the arms of a merciless master? Are you wasting away this morning? Whether other people can see it on the outside or in your soul. Do you feel it? And if you are, what do you think your father thinks of you this morning? Like honest answer, not not the, the right answer. Honest answer. If you heard his voice this morning, what tone do you think you would hear? Is it disappointment? Is it anger? Is it frustration? read verses 8 through 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In these verses, we're brought into a dialogue in the Trinity of God. It's asking, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? And those verses are, are simple enough to understand, but, but you might be wondering, what, what does it mean when he says, I can't make you like Adma, I can't treat you like Zebulun? 
Deuteronomy 29, verse 23 says this. It's referencing back to a historic event that happened in Genesis. The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt. Nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adna and Zebulun, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. These two cities mentioned in our passage today were in the valley that Sodom and Gomorrah were in. They were overthrown by God because of their rampant immorality. Genesis 19, 24 through 25 says this, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. She didn't notice something. It's hard for us to, to be confronted by this, but that burning sulfur was from the Lord out of the heavens. This is, this is a just penalty for sin and rebellion. This is the wrath of God against the rebellion of mankind. And it comes from God. I, I think it's important to point out that, that wrath is not an attribute of God. Justice is. Righteousness. Holiness. Wrath is something that comes out of those. And God poured out wrath on sinful people. And they were consumed and devoured. But when God looks at his child, Israel, his disobedient child, as wrath is stored up for the sins of his people, for real things they're doing that are wicked, God looks at them and the thought of pouring his wrath on his child causes his heart to recoil within him. It almost sounds scandalous to say out loud. God recoils at pouring out wrath on his child. His compassion and his tenderness grows. And God says something that just floors me. Why is God not going to destroy his people? Why is his heart recoiling? Why is his compassion growing warm? Because he is the Holy One. We are so used to thinking of God's holiness, meaning his wrath for sins. And this isn't a wrong picture biblically. Holiness means God is set apart. He is like no other. And God's righteous indignation for evil is a real thing, but but when God in this passage describes his holiness, when he says, you know what sets me apart? It's his compassion and his mercy. It says, for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God is not like us. He won't execute justice upon us, even if we deserve it. And we often like to think that we are very compassionate and gracious. Maybe it's just me. I like to think I'm very compassionate and gracious. But this passage right here is saying something very different. It's saying that if we were in the place of God, we would have wiped them out. 
That's what it says. God says, that's what man would do. But that's not what I will do. His heart recoils. Let that sink in. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. To borrow a phrase from Dane Ortland, what would this verse look like if it was wrapped in flesh? Before I answer that, let's look at our last verses. 10 through 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Look at the contrast from verse 5. Here the people will go after the Lord, not away from him. Verse 5, he calls, they keep going. They're swinging their arms and walking away. Here he calls them and they come to him. They come flying to him. They're fleeing from slavery and rushing towards him. We have this picture of a lion roaring. And upon hearing the word, God's children come trembling. Like birds, they fly away from Egypt and Assyria. This is an interesting picture. Is it the picture of a parent yelling their child's name? You know the tone your mom or dad use, which brings you fear? The one where you know that you're going to be punished, so you come trembling? Is this God finally just at the end of his patience saying, get over here? And the kid's coming trembling. Or is this something even darker? an abusive parent kid wants to get away and go further away but hearing the tone and hearing the yelling thinks that I, I better just come now is this the picture of a lion that's going to devour one that's here to consume one that is frightening his children so much that they return now or else. No. No, I think this is actually the answer to my question a moment ago. What would the verse, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath, look like wrapped in flesh? I want to borrow from another prophet who was prophesying at the same time as Hosea. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 31, verse 4 through 5. It says this, Thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. What's the picture? The lion in this verse is standing over his prey. This sounds terrifying for the prey. Maybe God is here to consume and destroy. That's not the emphasis of the picture. 
We know that's not the emphasis of the picture because the next verses say he's here to deliver and redeem his people and to fight for them. No, he's using the picture of a lion standing over its kill because he wants to communicate how ferocious and unafraid God is in defending who is his. God is defending and fighting off his own and nothing can come against him that will scare him away. Let that sink in this morning. What you have done, what you are doing, it cannot scare God away. If you are his, he is crouched over you and defending you and saying, nothing will get past me. Nothing. See, the lion's not here to destroy, but the lion is defending, rescuing, redeeming. He will protect deliver, spare, and rescue his people. The lion is not the destroyer, but the deliverer. I want you to notice something. It says that the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Throughout the Bible, Mount Zion represents the place where God dwells and rules his people. It's also a physical hill outside of Jerusalem. I believe that Hosea and Isaiah were were prophesying about something that happened soon after their words. But also, as often happens in Old Testament prophecy, they were also seeing something that was yet to come. I've heard it said before that the Old Testament, they often see a picture in front of them like a mountain range. They can make out the peaks, but they don't know how close or near they are together. They just see the picture before them. God fighting for his people on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It evokes something for us as Christians, doesn't it? Jesus, the Lord of hosts, came down and fought sin and death on the hill outside of Jerusalem. They didn't know it then, Hosea and Isaiah, but they saw Jesus fighting for his people. How did Jesus fight? Was it with weapons? Was it with violence? No. Jesus came and was devoured for his people. They raged against him. They consumed him. As he hung on the cross, his appearance changed. He was wasting away before their very eyes. God himself in flesh, protecting, redeeming, and saving his children. The lion on the hill. And if Jesus is the lion, the lion of Judah, the lion in Hosea, and the lion in Isaiah, if Jesus is the lion, then then what is his roar? What's the roar of Jesus that brings the nations trembling to him? Well, when they arrested him, He went quietly. At his trial, they falsely accused him, and he did not make defense for himself. Pontius Pilate brought the charges against him. He did not raise a defense. When they stripped him and mocked him and beat him and said, prophesy to us, he didn't open his mouth. 
when they taunted him. As he hung on the cross, they taunted him and said, if you really are who you say you are, call the angels to defend yourself. They're saying in that moment, if if you're really him, then, then you could call the angels to come and kill us. And he could have. And he didn't. What is, what is the roar of the lion? What is the roar of the lion of Judah that causes the nations to come trembling? I think it's this. It is finished. It is finished. See, when God looked at pouring out wrath upon his children, at pouring out wrath on you, his heart recoiled in himself. And God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed that Jesus would come and drink it instead. And as Jesus drank the last drop, he cried out before he gave up his spirit, it is finished. And ever since that moment in history, since Jesus uttered those words, the nations have been coming, trembling to the cross of Christ. Is it in fear? No. It's under the tremendous weight of mercy and grace. Have you ever come trembling in grace before? It's it's the soul that realizes that what I'm hearing What I'm starting to believe, it sounds too good to be true, and yet somehow I know it's true. It's the prodigal son coming back to the father and being scooped up into his loving arms and not able to give his speech about why he should just be a slave in his father's house, but instead the father is kissing him and welcoming his son home, and the son trembles. How could it be? How could he love me? the body not wasting away but being healed by the love of a father brothers and sisters be surprised by grace this morning this good news is for the unbeliever and the believer look at our verses again, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. They are flying away from slavery and towards their loving Father. How did God reverse the trajectory in the life of his people, the ones who were running from him, calling them and into slavery? And now they're running away from slavery into him. It was through grace and love. It was through him coming himself and drinking every last drop. It's through the cross of Christ. And flying away from slavery towards God, isn't that a wonderful picture of the Christian life? Isn't that just what we're doing now? I'm just, I'm trying to run away from things that enslaved me before. And I'm, I got my eyes locked on the Father, and I just want to get there. I want to get there. He, God has done battle for us. He's roared, not a roar of violence towards, towards us, but a roar of deliverance. 
And ever since we first heard that roar, something awoken in our hearts, and we heard a loving Father, and we've been running ever since. Do we trip and fall? Yes. Sometimes do we just pick up shackles and wear them like we're enslaved? Yes. But we keep going. Not because we're good, but because he is so good and he's calling us. And he didn't just call once. It's not the Christian life where God just says, hey, hey, I love you enough. It's finished. And, and you go, yes, God. And you come running and then you just live off that first roar. No, you hear him calling out your name day by day. Keep going. Come on. Come on, my boy. You can come. Come on, daughter. Oh, my sweet child. Keep running. I can't help but picture my daughters when they see me in joy from a way off and they come running across the church building. You know what? They almost always trip and fall. But then they get back up and they keep running. And you know what happens to me as a father? I can't stand there. I don't just sit planted and say, you come all the way. I go to them. The Father is calling us this morning. Not just unbelievers, but brothers and sisters, for, for God to, to transform our lives this morning, I think we just firmly need to know this morning, he's calling me, he's calling you right now. Come on. Keep coming. And our Father is rushing towards you. I want to make two points of application for us this morning. And then I want to give us an opportunity through worship and taking communion together to posture our hearts in a way that, that we might tremble under his mercy. Point one, this isn't just about our moment of our salvation. I know I just said it, but I'm going to repeat it. Sometimes we can become so familiar with the good news of the gospel that we think we're done being surprised by it. That's foolish. Last Sunday during our leadership community group, we were talking about this. And I was personally struck by the humility of our founding pastors and their wives. I think... And I could be wrong, they can correct me later. I think, I think most of them, if not all of them, have been believers longer than I've been alive. And they were sharing how they're still seeing God anew. <laughs> he's always showing and revealing more and he's delighting them. It struck me how God still surprises us with his goodness, his graciousness, his kindness, and his mercy. So let's go to him trembling. It's a news that should be too good to be true, and yet it's true. So how do we apply this? Don't harden your heart to his voice. God is calling out to you. You are running towards him and he is cheering you on. He loves you more deeply than you dare believe. And I mean that. Like you think, you, you go, he loves me this much. No, he loves you far more. He loves you deeper than you dare believe. Well, I can't believe that much. It's too good. Yeah, 
even more than that. He's calling you, but, but slavery is calling your name too. It's constantly calling. It's calling out to you. You, just, you, you, you want this. You can get approval here. Run to the arms of this instead. You know the way we resist the call of slavery is not to try harder. It's not to clean ourselves up. It's not to fix ourselves. It's to hear him calling out to you in love and dare to believe that he really is that good. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you're caught up in, no matter what you've done, if the Lord's calling you this morning, go running. No point number two, this isn't just about the moment of our salvation, but it isn't less than that. See, this morning, if you're hearing his voice for the first time, you can fly away from slavery and go straight into his loving arms. You can do that right now. If you hear his voice and and you think you hear a tone of disappointment, of, of anger, of frustration, can I just assure you this morning, that is a lie. father's calling out to you in love it's the kind of father's heart recoils at the thought of pouring out wrath upon you the one who drank every last drop to get you he wants you he's calling you with tender and warm compassion and you do need to hide from him my friend he loves you more deeply than you dare believe So hear him calling out to you in love and dare to believe that he really is that good. I want to pray. Band's going to come out and lead us into worship. And and I want to ask you, I just, I want this in my heart. I've been praying it all week. I've been been praying it just before the message today. I, I just, I'm praying that we would hear the Lord call our name and we would tremble under his mercy and grace. I don't know what that looks like. I've just been praying it. <laughs> guess that's a dangerous prayer then. But I want to pray, and then I, I want us to sing and be reflective. We're going to take communion. I want us to, to reflect on this good news for us. Let's posture our hearts this morning that we might receive from him right now. Let me pray. Father, Father, thank you that you love me far more than I dare believe. Thank you that you love us and you've called us. right now, Lord, would we each freshly hear you call our name? Would you surprise us by grace this morning? Would we hear you call our name, Lord, and would we come trembling beneath your grace and mercy? Lord, with the lies that tell us, no, it can't be that good. No, he wouldn't want you. No, you're not worthy of it, Lord. Would they be silenced by the roar of you? who cried out, it is finished. And God, would you give us faith to believe it? Would your grace be so good to us this morning? Would we taste of it? 
your mercy and your kindness and your goodness, would it satisfy our souls? Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation this morning? Renew a right spirit within us, Lord. Oh God, thank you for being the faithful Father. So we're coming running. Oh Lord, please keep calling your name. Lord, thank you that we know you will. Pray this in your name.